At this time, we'll excuse the kindergartners in first grade. We will be in First Kings today in 11, 12, and 14. Most of you would know that the month of January is named after the two-faced Roman god named Janus, J-A-N-U-S. He's the god of doors and gateways. When you would see his picture, sometimes you've seen it depicted on a coin. He's looking backwards at what has happened and he's looking forward to what is to come. And so we name January, January 1st. We stand here in this kind of unique day and we look back over 2005 and we evaluate ourselves. We ask ourselves those things that we wanted to accomplish, that they get done. We look forward and we make new promises or we try to start again. And today I want us to do some self-evaluation and perhaps some reorientation for the coming year by looking at the person of Jeroboam, picking up on his life and legacy and then the lessons from Jeroboam, who was the king of the northern kingdom, Israel, after it splits. So let's begin by looking at this text and considering Jeroboam's life. Solomon was the third king. There was Saul and then David and then Solomon from about 970 to 930 B.C., And we read in this text, 1 Kings 11, that Solomon did not walk in God's ways, and instead he followed after and pursued and worshipped other gods. So God promises to tear the kingdom in two. There's going to be a northern kingdom of ten tribes, and then a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. Some years before Solomon's death, Solomon had taken notice of a very ambitious worker. Solomon is probably best known for building the temple and rebuilding walls, and he had a lot of uh, civil service. And he took notice of one particular uh, ambitious young man named Jeroboam, and he promoted him to be the ruler over the whole working force in Jerusalem. And one day, when Jeroboam is walking out of Jerusalem, he has a very unusual encounter with the prophet Ahijah. And we read this in 1 Kings 11. Ahijah finds him, and there's this new garment that Ahijah has. And he takes the garment, and he tears it into 12 pieces. And he instructs Jeroboam to take 10 of them, which would represent his ruling over the larger territory we know as Israel. Now listen to the promises that are given to Jeroboam in 1 Kings 11:37. As for you, I will take you, this is God speaking through Ahijah to Jeroboam, and I will rule over all that your heart desires, and you will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands as David did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring or as sure as the one I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. Now imagine Jeroboam. Here he is, this ambitious young worker, sort of hungry for leadership. And he's walking out maybe from a building project in Jerusalem. And he meets this man that presumably he's never met before, a prophet of God named Ahijah. 
And Ahijah comes up to him and says, these incredible promises are yours, Jeroboam. This, this, this would have been beyond anything Jeroboam could have asked or imagined. He's going to rule over this massive territory, this northern kingdom, the stronger, the bigger of the two. With all these promises, Jeroboam must have thought, I'm set. This is all I need. This is beyond my wildest imagination. And I've been promised it. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 14, we'll fast forward many years later towards the end of Jeroboam's life. Jeroboam indeed has risen to be the king of Israel, yet he's drifted away from God. In 1 Kings 14, we read that Jeroboam is in a crisis. His oldest son is sick and appears to be dying. And he and his wife are wondering what's going to happen. And Jeroboam must have thought, you know that man Ahijah, that, that prophet of God, he, he seemed to know some inside information. Maybe we can go down and ask him what we should do or what's going to happen. But Jeroboam had fallen out of favor with Ahijah and drifted away from God. And so he comes up with this scheme. He wants to know what God might think, so he sends his wife instead in disguise. I wonder if you've ever done that as a man. You wanted to know something, but you were a little too afraid to find it out. So you nudge your wife out to find out the information for you. So she goes down in a disguise, hoping that Ahijah is not going to know that she's the wife of Jeroboam. And really, it's fruitless on a couple of reasons. Number one, Ahijah has now gone blind, so he can't see anymore. And he's not going to know if the woman comes in a disguise or not. And secondly, he hasn't lost touch with God and the power to see, even though his eyes can't see. And we read this in verse 6. Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, and he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why this pretense? I have been sent to you with bad news. Now imagine the nervousness right here of Jeroboam's wife. She's in disguise, and almost even before she knocks on the door, somebody inside says, Come on in, Jeroboam's wife. Why the disguise? I've got bad news. Go tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and made you a leader over my people Israel. Verse 8. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and I gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David who kept my commands and followed me with all of his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made... For yourself, other gods, idols made of metal. You've provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. And because of this, I'm going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. Verse 14. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Yes, even now, and the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to Israel, gave to their forefathers and scatter them beyond the river.
verse 16. And he will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. Then Jeroboam's wife got up and left. Imagine that walk home. Imagine the stun of Jeroboam's wife. She's hoping probably for some kind of good report. She comes down to the man of God and she must have been as stunned by the news that she heard from Ahijah as Jeroboam had maybe 20 years before. Jeroboam walking out of Jerusalem realized, I can't believe the promises that God's going to give me. And how Jeroboam's wife now, many years later, I can't believe these promises. My son's going to die. My whole family's going to be obliterated. The whole nation of Israel is going to be torn apart because of Jeroboam's sin. Let's fast forward one more time to 2 Kings. 2 Kings 17. Hosea is the last king of Israel. And this is the report that's given at the very end of Israel, the country, before it's taken over by Assyria. Verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. Verse 7. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt, and from under the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations. The Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices of the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. Verse 15, they followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. Verse 21, Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned through his servants and the prophets. How is it possible with somebody with so much promise looking forward, all these incredible promises, almost equal to what was given to David, you'd have an enduring kingdom. I will be with you. You will be the king over Israel. All that you desire will be yours. All this forward face, all this promise, now looking back 200 years. And Jeroboam is now the cause of the destruction of the entire nation of Israel. How do you create a legacy like that? How do you avoid creating a legacy like that? Well, here's where we pick up the lessons from Jeroboam, and the verses are written uh, in your handout. You can turn 1 Kings 12, which is where we'll spend the rest of our time, 26. 
How is it these, all this hope with his face looking forward has turned around to this hope or this disaster? What has happened? And let's read 1 Kings 12, 26. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to the king Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves, and he said to the people, Oh, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Hear your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. And the people went even as far as Dan to worship one there. Jeroboam had become the king of the northern area called Israel, just as God had promised. But Jeroboam one day began thinking about his territory. He had been given by the promises of God and just by the power of the nation all that he had wanted to rule. But now he's fearful of losing his position and he's fearful of the people. You see, Israel was given very specific worship instructions. You couldn't just go make sacrifices anywhere you wanted to. You had to go down to Jerusalem. And there were three times a year that all the people, all the Jewish people would go to Jerusalem for these great festivals. And what Jeroboam was thinking is, well, Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. And what might happen is my people might start going down to Jerusalem. They might remember some things that God has done. They might like Rehoboam instead of Jeroboam. And they might give their loyalty to them. So he calculates for himself. He thinks for himself, how can I stop that from happening? I've got to set up some worship places in my country so the people don't have to go down to Jerusalem any longer. So we have three lessons here from Jeroboam. And we've provided this little torn piece of cloth for you in your handout. You're probably wondering why that's there. We've torn a piece of cloth. Maybe you can keep it in your Bible at this particular place. You can think about it as the year progresses. But here are the three lessons that we're going to pick up on. Jeroboam lost his faith in God and he began to rely on his own wisdom. Jeroboam forfeited his faith in God for relying on his own wisdom. You see that? He thought to himself. Verse 27 Jeroboam did not live faithfully, but he lived fearfully. He had all these incredible promises, but he couldn't live according to those. He lived according to his fears, and once he began to live according to his fears, he became ruled and directed, not by God, but by other people. And finally, and sadly, in verse 28, Jeroboam makes a fundamental shift in worship. He begins to rely on his own wisdom and not God's. He lives fearfully and not faithfully. And then he has a fundamental shift in worship. You see, Jeroboam, this story here is not one of drug addiction. It's not a story of adultery. It's not a story of embezzlement. It's a story like a flashing light to warn people who are drifting away from God and his word. That's what happened to Jeroboam. He had all these incredible promises and he just begins to drift and drift away. 
And one year he wakes up and he makes a fatal mistake. He begins to rely on his own wisdom. He begins to think for himself, what should I do instead of trusting the promises of God? He trades in the eternal perspective of God for the self-centered, limited perspective of himself. Verse 26, you want to circle that. Jeroboam thought to himself. This kind of, when I started thinking about this, this reminded me of my days in playing football. We would line up to do a certain play, and occasionally I got it wrong. And so the coach would say something like this. Phillips! What are you doing? And I knew I wasn't doing it right at that moment. There was really no hesitation. And, you know, you're kind of feeling like I need to give a response to the coach. And I would say this. Well, coach, I thought... And here's what would happen simultaneously. First of all, I get that against my helmet. And at the same time, the coach would say, Is anybody paying you to think out here? Is anyone asking you to think at all, Phillips? I'm thinking, you do what I say. And that's not exactly what we're talking about here. We're not asking you, and God's not asking us, to not think at all. He is calling us to think, but He's calling us to think in biblical ways. Not to think for ourselves, but to think from what the Scripture has to say. Let's think about this for a moment. Romans 12, 2. Romans 12 is sort of the turning point in Romans. We've had all this great theology, and then Paul says, he says, finally, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. You need to be transformed. And how are you going to be transformed? What does he say in Romans 12, 2? By the renewing of your mind. You see, the turning point for our lives outside of this building is that our minds are saturated with the Word of God. What would God say about this particular situation? What promises has He made? What can I hold on to? Paul says this in Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure or lovely, anything that's excellent or praiseworthy, think. Think about these things. Have your mind saturated with these things. And Deuteronomy eleven sixteen, I love this verse. Be careful. This is Moses. He's telling the people they're going to enter into the land of Canaan. And he's saying, be careful. Or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Fix these words of mine in your hearts. Fix these words of mine in your mind. Fix them in your mind. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Buy them on your forehead. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when you're sitting at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. And then listen to this. Write them on the door frames of your houses And your gates. The Roman god Janus, the the god of doors and gates. See, every time you go through the doorway, every time you go through the gate, whether you're coming or going, you're, you're fixing your mind on the principles that God has laid down for us. At Christ Community Church, our motto is to 
know Christ and to make Him known. How are we going to do that? By teaching people to think and to live biblically. I can't tell you how many problems I hear about that the root of the problem is I've just neglected to do what God has asked me to do. Sometimes the problems come from without. But so many of our problems are, I know what God has asked me to do. I know what His promises are. I just haven't done it. And now I find myself in this situation. Look back for a moment. Look back over 2005. Have you drifted away? Oh, you probably haven't done it intentionally. But have you just sort of drifted away from God's Word? And and so pretty much five, six days a week, you get up and you think for yourself. What should I do? How should I go about this? How should I tackle this? How should I handle this issue? I'm thinking to myself. I'm, I'm not consulting the Word of God first. Look forward. What kind of legacy are you leaving for your children? If they're looking at you, would would in 20 years or 200 years, they be saying, well, we need to look at God's word because that's the way I've seen my mother do it. That's the way I've seen my father do it. Is Is that what's happening in our church if our church is around 200 years from now, would people still be consulting the Word of God as the primary source of their information? Or would it just become secondary like so many churches? We read it and then we sort of put it aside. And now we're thinking for ourselves because we know so much more. I had breakfast with a college student who's returning from the College of Charleston this week. And the last time I had breakfast with him was before he was going off to school for the semester, maybe back in August. And I said, hey, how's your semester been? Oh, Paul, it's been so much better. I was like, great. Is there one particular reason? There's one reason. I was kind of surprised. What's that reason? The Word of God. I've been reading God's Word every day. And that's totally changed how I think about the relationships I've been in. It's totally changed the way I think about the the classes that I take. It's totally changed everything. You see, he's found something that I'm afraid some of us have just drifted away from. We didn't wake up saying we wanted to. We've just been drifting. We think for ourselves. Secondly, Jeroboam didn't live faithfully. See, he took his focus off God and two things happened. He became fearful. And second, once he became fearful, instead of looking for God for help, he began to look at other people. That's what happens. When you take your focus off God, you have all these insecurities, all these fears come up, and then you're grasping You're thinking for yourself, you're grasping for others, and your direction becomes one of other what other people want. Notice here 
how his insecurities spill out. Remember all the promises that, Jer- that Jeroboam has given? And now what, he's, what is he afraid of? Even though God has promised the whole kingdom to him, he's saying, well, gosh, if the people go down to Jerusalem, they might kill me. It becomes irrational. Consequently, Jeroboam is driven to do what it takes to please the people. They become the controlling factor. I wonder if that's really a controlling factor for you, what other people say, what other people think. I want you to know that it's very easy. Remember in the last day of Jesus' life, Peter and Pilate pretty much have the same experience. Peter, the great apostle, the strong one, the confident one, he finds himself in some sort of courtyard of people nearby where Jesus is being tried. And you remember what happens? A little servant girl, somebody of absolutely no standing in the culture, comes up to him and says, Now, weren't, weren't you with Jesus? The great apostle... It only takes one little voice for him to crumble. I wonder if you look back, is there one little voice? One boyfriend? One girlfriend? One peer? One neighbor? One boss? One parent? One little voice that's gotten inside of your head and said, like a snake that slithered up a tree. Is this what God said? I mean, given the circumstances, shouldn't you take matters in your own hand? And you just begin to drift away because one little voice, strong as you may be, has just made you drift away. Or Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to do anything with Jesus but let him go. But he's fearful. And he brings Christ who's been beaten. And he says, what should I do? Here's the king of the Jews. Crucify him. The whole crowd shouts. And what does it say in Mark 15? Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Look back. Have you been derailed because of the crowd? The noise of the culture say, this is the right way. This is what you should do. It seems like everybody's doing it this way at school. Everybody's doing it this way in my neighborhood. Everybody does it this way in this kind of business. I know it's not the right way, but everybody's doing it this way. This whole shouting of the culture of the crowd has captured your attention. And you're drifting away. You see, it can be a whole crowd... Or it can be one little voice. He becomes fearful. And he doesn't follow God. He follows himself or he follows others. Finally, Jeroboam makes this fundamental shift in worship. I want you to circle these words either in your bulletin or in your Bible. Verse 28, after seeking some advice, bad advice... The king made two golden calves and he said to the people, this is the phrase that you need to circle. It's too much for you. 
You see, the shift was shifting away from God's promises to his own thinking. Shifting from faith to fear. And now shifting in his worship. Worship becomes man-centered, not God-centered. You see, what was happening was it took some time to get down to Jerusalem. And he played on that people's convenience and desire for idol worship and said, if I set up some places, one place in the south and one place in the north, then people will be happy that it's convenient for me to go there instead of down to Jerusalem. So it's too much for you. And I want you to see this enormous shift that Jeroboam actually helps build a nation that says this. We still want God. But we want them in a way that will be convenient for ourselves. Jeroboam helps build a nation that says this. We still want God. We just want them in a way that's convenient for ourselves. Worship should now center around what's easiest and most convenient for me. Worship becomes no different than the shop on the corner. The customer is the king. Whatever the customer wants, the customer should decide what should happen. And you see, the challenges for the modern church are no different than Jeroboam. You and I, we live in a culture just like that. We've shifted the focus away from God, and the focus in worship has become man-centered. And so worship is all about what's best for me, what's most convenient for me, and we think of ourselves first instead of God first. This is pretty typical. We'll have a conversation in an inquirer's class. And I'll ask this question. On a Sunday morning, if we have uh, the audience and the performers, who's the audience? And this is pretty typical. They'll say, well, we're the audience. People sitting out there. I'll say, well, who's the performers? You're the performer, the worship team or the performer. Anybody up on stage are the performers. That's man-centered worship. Because what, here's what's happened. I don't like the performer today. I don't like the person who's singing. You know, I found out that Paul's not preaching and yeah, it's not convenient for me. If we're thinking biblically, who's the audience on Sunday mornings? God is. Who are the performers? You are. Do you realize that? You've come today not to listen to me, to perform worship for God. He's the audience of one. And we're all here trying to direct our attention just to one person, God Almighty. And so it doesn't matter about convenience But what do we say? What do we say right here at Christ Community Church when we come in late? What if you went to a theater production down at Thalian? And you're there on time. You paid your $25. You got right up in the front row. And the performers came in and said, Gosh, I'm sorry it's late. I I needed that cup of coffee. And I I had to run one more errand. And you don't mind if I kind of tune up now and... I don't really want to do it the way you thought I was going. I was going to do something else. And you'd be outraged. But yet we come half-heartedly kind of a slipshod and we're late and it's 
It's no big deal. You know why? Because Paul's the performer. He's a decent fella. It's okay with him. I'm, I'm not the person we're here for. God is the person we're here for. And we want to do it excellently. We want, we want to do our very best at that. But we live in a time, we live in a culture, we have even in our own church, slipping away, drifting away. We think for ourselves, we're fearful, and our worship is shifted to ourselves instead of God. I've told the story a couple of times, especially in the inquirers class, that this idea came home to me, particularly one Easter week. The week before Easter, we had these Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, midweek services, basically. So a small group of people came and we sang and we kind of listened and listened to some contemplative music. And it was about a half an hour at lunch. And I had a little five or seven minute piece that I would talk about. And Monday, half a dozen people came and Tuesday, a half a dozen people came. And then Wednesday, nobody came. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I got a free half hour. I go get something to eat or. And then I remember this. Well, well, who did I do this for? Did I do it for the half a dozen people that came or or the half a million people that came? Is that why I did it? No, I did it for the audience of one. And so I sat in the little chapel back here by myself. I sang the songs. I'm sorry, I didn't record them that particular day. I sat quietly, I listened to the music. I stood up behind the little podium and I gave my seven little minute sermon. It's the great best one I've ever given. Why? I was there to perform for God Almighty, not for one other person. And so I wonder, here we are at January 1st. You're looking forward, you're looking back. Have you drifted away? Do you have a plan of attack right now on how you're going to just have your life and your mind saturated with the Word of God or mostly you're just depending on yourself? Are you fearful? You're really afraid of what's going to happen this year. You're concerned, even though you know the incredible promises of God, that He who began a good work is faithful to complete it. You know that, you can say it, you can repeat it, but you're holding on to things for yourself. Because I don't know if He's actually going to do it. So I've got to take control. I've got to have my hands wrapped around it. God needs my help. Look forward, look back. Has worship become about you? Are you the most important person? Do you have to be pleased when you come on Sunday morning? Is that the idea? I mean, of course, you'd never say it. If you drifted away. No matter how far you've drifted. There's no better place to come back. And no better time to come. Than on January 1, the Lord's table. He's... Here, he's saying what we sang. We're saying, come, Lord Jesus. And he's saying this. You come. I'm coming to you. You come. 
come and eat of a feast that you can't even imagine. If you come and you're in disguise, I won't know. I mean, I'm not a hijack. I don't know if you're coming up here pretending to be a believer and you're not. I believe God knows. There's a great warning in the scripture to not come in a disguise. Oh, you can come from any distance of drifting, but don't come pretending. God has given of himself. He's coming. He's pursuing you. He's begging you, come. Take. Eat in a way that you won't have any fear. You won't have any hunger. You won't have any thirst. Everything's going to be met in Jesus Christ. I'll ask the elders to come forward and take a few minutes as the music plays and just think. Just look forward. Look back. Have you drifted in some way? Put your bookmark there and ask, how can I remember these things? I, I don't want to be like Jeroboam. I don't want to leave a 200-year legacy that people would go back and say, it's, it, it really started right there. We want a 200-year legacy of great growth and great fruit because you were faithful to live according to the promises of God. I'm going to pray for us and then you come when you're ready. Lord, come. All of us have drifted. All of us have fears and anxieties. We may look a lot more like the nations around us, worshiping idols and becoming worthless ourselves. Come, rescue us. Create in us a new heart, O oh God. And renew a right spirit in us today. So we may live and walk in a manner worthy of your great calling. In Jesus' name, amen.